This is The Miller's Tale, Episode 5. Welcome to The Miller's Tale, Episode 5, with me, your host, Mike Whittaker. Now, I promised, I really did, that this episode will be out by the end of November. It's currently 5pm on November the 30th, and I have copious notes, which is quite unlike me for an episode, and we are ready to roll. I'm hoping to get this edited and out by the end of tonight. Um, the fact that I have a band rehearsal for church in about an hour may mean that it gets deferred until Saturday, which is December the 1st. So, hey, I was close. Right, what have we got for you this episode? Um, we're back to Mike's pontificating on things. Uh, there will be more reviews um, to the person who asked whether or not um, I'm going to do Ducks Britannia. Well, of course I am. Um, I'd kind of get lynched if I didn't, I think. So there will be more reviews, but not this time out. This time out, we're back to catching up on what I've been up to, to a few things like blog watch and the like, uh, possibly a little bit of a rant, because they're always good. And I have a something interesting for you as the long talky piece at the end. So, as someone I know is wont to say, without further ado, onwards. <laughs> new piece for this time out i actually get feedback enough to warrant its own i don't we call it letters feedback section so beginning with mr ballista who commented on the blog post that comes with this the effect if you've got a better theme tune than your former colleagues um i beg to differ actually i really like the meeple's theme tune uh, and mine's just some apple Gar garage band loops magic um, and the fact that I can, um, I know enough about musical harmony to actually glue uh, garage band loops together in an interesting and hopefully so relatively melodic fashion. So, yeah, that's that. Johnny Yingling, who um, has been a regular, regular listener, uh, comments that um, he likes the Cold Light of Day format. And as I said before, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to do some more of that. I have quite a few rule sets that I've played often enough um, that they merit, I think, a good deep dive now that one has one's head round what's good and bad about them. Um, they won't be just Lardy's rules, so don't don't be surprised if, if things that, that are buried in the murky depths of time put in an appearance. Eric Shirk writes to ask... Essentially, how do folks base for 6mm? Now, you know, I ain't been shot, I'm now 
don't know, <laughs> basing six mil, but I can hazard a rough guess. But I figured the best thing to do was to go straight to the source and ask on the I Ain't Been Shopman Facebook group in the hope that we can get a response from the folks who do do six mil. Um, which includes Mark Luther, to whom I owe profuse apologies for calling him Mark Lester for the entirety of the last episode. Uh, Mark Lester is a former colleague at Yahoo, and uh, clearly my brain was uh, somewhat befuddled when I recorded that. Anyway, so the general answer for anybody else who's wondering does appear to be multibase on either MDF squares or US pennies or something with two or three figures, and then you can either use casualty markers or micro dice or you can make change but since you're probably going to be using micro dice for shock then it's not really that much of a problem to do the things you need to do to, to remove track casualties um, in fact in some ways it is much easier um, than the alternatives in 15mm. I, in 15mm, as I think I've said, base on Flames of War bases. Uh, Rob Avery, who's as much entitled opinion as I am, given that he's probably written more uh, I Ain't Been Shotman supplements than any man alive, actually bases on very small rounds and uses Sabo bases, um, so that an entire section is one Sabo base with a bunch of figures on it, which, again, to each their own, it all works, it's all good. Counterpane comments with a whole blog post worth of comment, which I'm not going to read, but you can find linked from the comments to episode four. Uh, he echoes Jonathan Yingling's comment. It was good to hear a review from someone who's been playing a set of rules for some time. I'd urge Mike to go on doing this. I'm starting to get the message here. Um, I really enjoyed the episode, and given Mike's general focus on historical gaming, I think it's not unlikely that The Miller's Tale could become my favourite wargaming podcast. Uh, the check's in the post, mate. Alternatively, catch me on the show and I'll buy you a beer for that one. And finally, Roger Bell West, hi Roger, asks vis-a-vis -vis, I ain't been shot one, regarding dissatisfaction with the tea break approach, I think you're perhaps being a little simplistic in suggesting that any objectors just want to play chess. One problem you don't mention at all is it's rather a blunt model. I readily agree with you that even when not under fire, a section might freeze up and not do anything until it's shouted at. But should the odds of that be the same for a bunch of loamshell lads seeing the elephant for the first time, for some elite paratroops eager to give the Germans what for, and for some tired Russians who just want some rest and warmth? Fair question. Um, in my defence, I would say that I wasn't just referring to the tea break approach with my just play chess comment there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there particularly to do with mm, very uh, rigid the regimented movement you see in other games that that lends to that whole yes i will advance six inches in fact go listen to the i've been shop on advert that's run on meeples for the last god knows how long and you'll see exactly what i mean as far as it being a blunt model yep I'll agree with you to a point, in that it's very much a case, there is no greater odds on a units card turning up if it's elite versus if it's not, but, um, and I agree it's not perfect, um, and 
why while yes it's a blunt model it's also an abstraction degree and one of the things you do get with the elites or the like is they will be better commanded and the combination of that should ensure that they activate somewhat better than say the bunch of loamshire lads seeing that yank panzer for the first time now that isn't perfect because if you actually want to look if you're looking at it as not an abstraction there is a degree to it yes the paras should have the will to get off their backsides and do something without being kicked by their their leaders so the fact that you're doing it off a leader card and maybe you shouldn't be is a bit hazy but i think if you step back a little bit further from it than than the perfection of the, the perfection of the model the results you get out of it are about right open to discussion on that one um i'm quite happy to let that one run and run so um that's the letters page um nice to have one uh so we'll move on to the news only really a couple of bits this time out i mean i could catch up on everything that's new in the wargamers world from last time i did a news segment but i think we're all um i think we'd end up with a podcast that was possibly a little bit longer than i wanted if we did that so one of the main things that's coming up fairly soon as in it's listed with december release date is wall of games cruel seas now if you're a wargames illustrated subscriber in a in a walk into the shop and get a paper copy variety, you will have noticed that stuck to the front of the current issue are a couple of either e-boats or MTBs for Cruel Seas. Um, essentially, it's a 1-300 scale tabletop game where you command small ships. So we're not talking even destroyers here. We're talking MTBs, converted trawlers, e-boats, that kind of thing. Essentially, it's sort of close in coastal waters, down and dirty, dirty skirmishing, for want of a better word. Um, I'm not aware, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, of, of any rule set that's really covered this before. Um, it, it looks kind of fun. There's a part of me looking at the pictures from one of the Warlord Games days, wonders if 1/300th isn't a bit bigger scale. But I'm assured by folks who actually have, have looked into some of these combats that they really were very much down and dirty, close in, close in nasty fighting. And, and there is some justification for plonking it on a standard sort of club table. Of course, it doesn't stop you playing it on a larger one. So, what do you get? <coughs> we have a starter set for 50 quid, which comes with a set of the rules a quick start guide um, six vosper mtbs four e-boats and a set of tokens and an a0 battle map now a0 is one two four eight times a4 isn't it because a3 is a3 a2 a1 yeah it's pretty damn big um, I'm curious to see how they fit that in the box. Um, 
I can't be bothered to do the maths, but I'm, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's big enough. And if it's not, um, club tables, paint them blue, you're sorted. Um, as well as that, we have a by the rule backpack on its own. There are fleet packs. For instance, the Royal Navy fleet pack comes with some more Vospers and an armed trawler, trawler and a bowfighter. Um, the Kriegsmarine fleet pack comes with some S100 and S38 e-boats and a minesweeper, a Stuka. Uh, we've even got the Imperial Japanese Navy, and that's got assorted kamikaze boats, sampans, and the like. There's an American one, which I'm sure we can sort of get a reasonable idea of what's going to be in that. Um, the they do a terrain map, which is four by four. There are some merchant trawlers. There's a lighthouse. In short, it's kind of all set up for. Quite a nice looking close in um, skirmish. Now, I haven't yet had a chance to play this, partly because it's not out yet, but it's very, very imminent. The website says December, which is in my book tomorrow, so fairly soon. Uh, I know Graham from our club has got designs on actually running it, so when that happens, I shall report back with a short potted review in this section, or probably in the What Have I Been Playing section rather than in the detail section at the end, as I'm going to try and reserve that for longer in-depth reviews of things I know well, uh, which I can absolutely guarantee you I won't um, for Cruel Seas for a while yet. So that's Cruel Seas. Um, the other bit of news that I wanted to cover this time out is for those of you who are paying attention to the hobby news, um, there's been an update on their Facebook page today from Hysterical Games, which I understand has also gone out to various of their Kickstarter backers and the like. I'm not going to read it all out, but in summary, um, unfortunately we have some bad news. Over the last few weeks it has become clear that Hysterical Games is facing a major cash flow problem and that we are now only left with the option of winding the company up. Exactly how we will do this has yet to be decided. Um, so, reading down, um, we are looking at various options for our games to continue. We believe the games and background are good enough to survive and going forward from Flourish. This is, of course, Panzerfauster, which is their take on Weird War, I guess, Weird War 2. Which um, I have to say I've been I'm quite fond of this. It's got some very very nice figures coming with it, um, and they they ran a demo of it on our show. A couple of I think not this show but last show, which seemed very well received. So uh, it sucks. Um, it's not good news when, when that kind of thing happens. There are far too many uh, small companies for whom that's becoming an issue at the moment. And when it boils down to it, it's down to this, this issue that they actually highlight in as many words. It's cash flow. It's all very well um, 
having brilliant IP, or if you're a retailer, having having lots of good customers and lots of stock. Uh, but if you can't actually move the stock and generate money to keep your business running, then it's not really much good to you. And and this is, let's face it, is actually a fundamental truth of running a business of any size that you can be, you can have all the capital assets in the world. Uh, but if you can't actually push money through the business to keep keep your ongoing costs going uh, for such rather embarrassing things as the fat man and paying your employees and paying your rent, then you are those don't stop just because you're having a tough time of it, unfortunately. Now, now it does seem from talking to various people and and listening to various things that have have been said said in my hearing that it's a common problem at the moment a lot of traders are saying that the market is rubbish at the moment now the consensus appears to be this is possibly due to games workshop suddenly having hit the world with half a dozen shiny new products that are actually somewhat better thought out and marketed than some of their previous attempts and frankly they're not part of the war games hobby they don't want to be part of the war games hobby if you look for the word war games in their annual report, you will not find it anywhere. Uh, their business is selling figures by selling rules, and that's what they do. But there is, unfortunately, especially in these somewhat um, uncertain times, only a finite amount of money in the hobby. And quite frankly, um, if it goes on Games Workshop, particularly for those cases where it's people who have a wider range of interest than just the historical part of the world. Um, Games Workshop's a big brand. It's a popular thing to buy as Christmas presents. People are going to put money that way, particularly if there are new products out which are worth buying that would otherwise end up coming to the likes of historical games. All those small traders who are shifting boxes of interesting stuff at your your shows, etc, etc, etc. There is sadly only a finite amount of money to go round. Now, if you add to the fact, add that, there is of course the fact that we've still got Kickstarters. Now, there seem to be fewer hugely exciting war games, board games crossover Kickstarters than there have been of late. Um, now, part of that might just be that I'm not being on the uh, on the Meeple's podcast. I, I failed to notice what what hobbies Hobbsy's spent his money on this time. Um, but it does seem to me that there's a bit fewer in the way of big Kickstarters sucking up people's disposable income. But it does does seem that that's been a bit of a contributor. Um, I'm I'm starting to move. Those who've heard me rant about Kickstarters before, I'm starting to move away from the feeling that yes, I understand that the likes of Mantic, Cool Mini or Not, etc., are have just sussed how to use kickstarters as an expensive as a clever way of doing pre-orders and yeah it's fine i mean it's it's smart of them but i have a nasty feeling that one of the things that i said a few times about that is it really does kill the small guy because um to take my tenant um for those who remember i have a war game shop at the bottom of my garden um, well, no, let's be straight. I have a war games retailer at the bottom of my garden. Um, if you look at 
Mantic. He doesn't sell Mantic. He can get you it, but there isn't much point in him stocking it because everybody who wants it has probably bought it on Kickstarter, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that includes me. And and the same is true of any of the other things that go out on on big, um, umpty thousand times the initial, um, the initial speculatory speculative target. Um, they're basically people are going to buy that kind of stuff from from the Kickstarter, and they're going to expect ridiculously good deals and once that's done the odds on being you will be able to buy stuff on follow-up but it's going to be more expensive than the kickstarter and you're going to have to buy it direct from the manufacturer if the manufacturer's got any stock left because it's not it makes no sense for the likes of pe2 collectibles or anybody else who isn't a massive bop shifter and can afford the risk to take it on because they're not going to sell it because it's all been bought um, and that, the other the other little trick that seems to be happening a lot, and I've seen it more in the board games world, is this idea of um, the the big pre-sale Kickstarter that that reaches its target in three minutes. Now, don't come and say to me that if you are Mantic or Simon or whoever that you didn't know that was going to happen. You, the, the the target for Kickstarters like that is essentially meaningless. If you know you've got a popular product, you just set it to you can set it to create the buzz. Now, I am very much not targeting the likes of Bad Squiddo here. Um, Bad Squiddo genuinely need to do and and figure manufacturers like that genuinely need to do a Kickstarter because we're down to that word cash flow again. You can't if you want to make a range of figures like say Annie's Freya's Roth Shield Maiden the like or things like that you need the upfront money for the tooling costs if unless you are the size of uh, Warlord or Mantic or the like then Kickstarter or pre-sales or the like or borrowing from the bank are the only ways you are going to make enough money to do something like Fresroth or a new range of figures because if you in order to produce the stuff you need to pay for stuff up front um, because everybody else has cash flow and that's that's kind of the way it is but but the likes of Manti I mean demonstrably if you are as well off as Warlord and if you go and dig around in company house like I've in the past, Mantic aren't that far off. It is not necessary for you to use Kickstarter as a massive pledge-generating, pre-sale-generating, profit-generating, cash-flow-generating thing. Warlord managed without. Warlord, I mean, let's look at what we've just talked about. Cruel Sea. Cruel Sea is coming out. The last time Warlord tried to do his Kickstarter was beyond the gates of Antares, and they loused it up completely. And they've done very well without since. Um, and I think, in some ways, Warlord are don't you don't really want to tar Warlord with the same brush as Games Workshop um, for the simple reason that their um, their business plan 
they, they, they are they are fundamentally not evil, as far as I can tell. Um, and yes, all right, that's a tongue-in-cheek remark, and you can chastise me for it later. Um, if you, but if you contrast the way Warlord do it with the way the likes of Mantic, Kilmini or not, etc. do it, um, I think that the combination of the brand, the big flood of, of GW products that's taken at people's disposable income, and the whole there's stuff all for the small retailers to buy because it's all been bought on Kickstarter is not good for the hobby. Um, you can't do anything about Games Workshop, unfortunately. They are what they are and they will do what they do and sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. Um, but <sighs> what I say really. Um, in all seriousness, support your local retailer. If you want to buy something, don't go to the big box shifters. Go buy it off a stall at a show if you're not in a hurry for it. Because for crying out loud, stuff sits on painting piles for years, literally years. Um, you don't need it tomorrow. Um, just because your tame web store has it, it doesn't have it in stock doesn't mean they can't get it for you. Most of them talk to their suppliers at least once a week, if not sooner. Um, I know PE2, as our local example, if I talk to Ruben on a Monday at the club um, and say, I want this, it'll probably turn up the club the following week. I know a lot of people do that because it's just easier. I mean, having having your own Wargames concierge service is kind of nice, really. So I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, other than um, the hobby... Um, Things like the hysterical announcement, um, I rather hope, aren't the tip of a bigger iceberg. But I do I do hear that people are not doing brilliantly with cash flow in the run-up to Christmas. So if you've got things you want to buy, go talk to your friendly local virtual or real gaming store and keep them with cash flow, because cash flow is what keeps companies going. <laughs> Okay, it's time for the confessional. Um, I make no bones about borrowing that title from Neil, um, because <laughs> this one is. So, what have I bought? What have I bought? Um, not a right lot, actually. In fact, nothing. I have, and this will probably shock a few people, shifted ten boxes of Napoleon of War figures. Um, they've been taking up a pile of space on my shelves since pretty much um, Neil reviewed Napoleon at War and Meeples in horrendously enough, 2011, I think. And they have accumulated a few here and there, sat there. They've done nothing. I've done a conscious think about how far down the painting pile they are. And quite frankly, uh, lovely as the figures are, nice an idea as it was, nice a set of rules as it was, the odds on me with my current eyesight painting them, or with my current disposable income, Paying someone else to paint them, um, this side of Doomsday is sufficiently small that, quite honestly, um, they're more used to someone else. And someone on the Napoleon at War Group was very happy to take them off my hands for a remarkably reasonable amount of money, uh, which I'm pleased to say will be going back to Reuben um, very, very shortly, as I have a shopping list for one of my projects that requires me to go and acquire... <laughs> in an interesting contradiction to what I just said, requires me to go and require some Mantic figures that I foolishly should have bought in a Kickstarter when they were cheap and didn't. <laughs> Never mind. 
Uh, more on that one in a couple of episodes time, I hope. So, so that's my one sale. My one notable purchase, which, which was interesting, was uh, actually an audiobook. Uh, it's an audiobook called Steaming to Victory, How Britain's Railways Won the War, which is pretty much what it says on the tin, really. It's um, an interesting look at how um, the railways coped with World War II. Um, it passes my my test of an audio book uh, in that it's actually read by someone who's capable of reading out loud in a manner that doesn't confuse, distract and otherwise annoy. Uh, it's got a bunch of yeah, a whole bunch of interesting stories of everything from um, engineering feats, getting people home from Dunkirk, the Dunkirk evacuation, D-Day, so on and so forth. Um, my one gripe is that it's a bit disjointed. It does bounce around a bit from... <sighs> the chapters are more thematic than they are time-related. So you'll find you'll get a chapter about um, air attacks on the railways which will run various, picky various events out from all the way through the war, and then you'll bounce to the ships owned by the railway companies, and you'll do another thing. Like, and it, 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 In that sense, it's a little bit disjointed. It is, however, a rattling good yarn. Um, it's an aspect of the war that doesn't get as much coverage as it should, um, and for reasons which will become apparent further on down, it rather fits in with what's the recurring theme of this episode. So that's Steaming to Victory, How Britain's Railways Won the War, by Michael Williams. Now, you can get it in paperback, you can get it in Kindle. Uh, it's available for the standard one credit on Audible if you are, like me, a fan of Audible. And I will make sure there is a link to the book in the show notes. So, what have I been up to? <laughs> um, how long have you got? Um, let's take it as read that I have wargamed. Um, and we last had one of these in about September, I think. So I'm not going to cover what would be effectively something like 12 weeks of uh, um, club um, catch-up and the like. The, the high spots... Um, there was a Herald War Game show. Um, if you missed it, where were you? Um, it was good fun. Uh, we had some lovely games, as always. The um, the Nutters from the the Huntingdon show produced another of their their randomly wacky games that 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 won itself an award. Um, there were some fabulous fabulous games. Um, sadly, nothing from the Lenton guys, uh, who did Oppie Wood. The previous year, they were out celebrating um, Tom Webster Deakin's 50th, I think. Which, uh, uh, I suppose, we'll let them off. There were, there were good things. Uh, yeah, it was good fun. Um, possibly a little bit down on numbers from last year, but that seems, as as we discussed earlier up the episode, seems to be a bit prevalent in the in the hobby overall. Uh, one thing I think we have taken away from that is that we're not even going to try 
and organise any tournaments other than the Magic and X-Wing ones that the Rift organised for us next year because it, frankly, um, the space will probably be better used for games and the, the take up on it has been fairly dismal. So it's a shame, but that's what it is. Um, what else have we done? Um, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, we took the infamous Dembusters game to Coningsby, by which I do mean the airfield. <coughs> there's, there's a photo kicking around somewhere, which I'll try and include in the show notes, of us running the Dembusters game to the background of three Eurofighters in the big hangar at Coningsby. And we did actually get real live sound effects of the lank going overhead at one point, which was pretty damn brilliant. Um, we really enjoyed that. It was exceptionally good fun. Um, I would do it again in a heartbeat, simply simply for the experience of getting to do it at Cullingsby. That is, I should add, pretty much it for the Dambusters for this year. As we said, I think, at the start of the year, it is the 75th anniversary of the raid this year and we've taken it out several times to considerable acclaim which is quite gratifying so next year as you should be able to do the math for is the 75th anniversary of D-Day for those who've seen it the couple of times it's been at a show in the past we are going to be taking our bloody Omaha game which is a big sprawling eight by six table of I ain't been shot on goodness, uh, which is basically the fight for uh, the beach that the 29th and the first landed on on Omaha. It's one of Rich Clark's scenarios from the Where the Hell Have You Been Boys book, um, which we've tarted up for version three. Um, I do have a complete nine litre box of. Uh, not only to really useful box full of American boat combat teams. I think I must have bought every retailer out of the boat boat team uh, Flames of War pack and assorted landing craft um, a few years ago when we did this. And their their opponents are a scarily small number of British number of Germans. Sorry, uh, and typically what we do is we will let the umpire, me or whoever, run the Germans because um, it's no fun. You are on a long-term hiding to nothing, but part of the exercise is in seeing just how scarily easy it is to defend a well-dug-in position uh, with basically a bunch of MG34s uh, and a couple of couple of bigger guns against a really surprisingly uh, large number of Americans. Think the opening to Private Ryan and saving private ryan and you will get the idea when i ran it for one of the operation market laden days um the first german casualty in a game we'd been running since 9:30 a.m happened just after lunch um which will give you an idea uh as players uh, the on the on the american side you you will basically get to get to handle this boat section and see how you can do the way my being shot one works, um, there should be enough um, enough to go around. We have a custom deck of cards with plenty of commanders in it, so things should generally tend to activate, and people will get to do get to do stuff. Uh, that will be coming to salute. I'm kind of hoping to get it with a few more shows next year. 
uh, but the major thing that needs to happen to it is that we do need to spend a little bit of time tarting the scenery up as a couple of the trench boards look like the dogs have chewed it uh, and the beach boards have all warped uh, because I was a bit naive in how to try and represent water uh, so I'm going to have a better go at that in a manner that doesn't cause the board to warp so that should be fun um, other main things I've been playing of late. Um, the club's been running a Gaslands um, league, uh, which I didn't win, but then I never win it because <laughs> Rob organised it, so Rob wins it. I don't know quite how he manages this, but every time Rob organises club tournaments, he wins them. Um, excellent fun. Um, got to try out a few new things, got to discover quite how much fun it is going through gates sideways and on fire to win races, that kind of thing, which always good fun. And I do I do have a soft spot for Gaslands. For a giggle, I've been playing Rumble Slam. Now if you've not come across Rumble Slam, it's a fantasy um wrestling game. Um it's just just a barrel of laughs. It's one of these Nice short, um, I think what the Americans would call a beer and pretzels. Half an um, hour, hour or so. Um, tag team over the top rope, fantasy wrestling. Basically, you get a squad of four or five, team of four or five figures with various abilities. Um, and it's a who's the last teams to, who has the most people standing in the ring at the end of five rounds. It's got some quite nifty little mechanisms. Um, if you fancy something just for a, for an outbreak of silliness, um, for for the club night for a club night, it's one of the nice game a nice game that will fit in a club night. And if you don't really want to do something historical, you just fancy a little bit of light entertainment. Um, I can thoroughly recommend it to the extent that I will be uh, placing an order with uh, with Ruben for uh, for my own team, so I don't have to keep borrowing Rob's, because I think we may be having a a, a ladder in the new year just just because that kind of thing that. Fits it. It fits the club very nicely. Now the other major thing I've been doing is playing. I ain't been chop mum. Now I did take a game up to Thule Gamers in Shetland. Um, we went on our holidays there in good God September. Um, stop me if I mention this in another podcast, but. The amusing thing about this is I worked out how to fit an I Ain't Been Chopped on game into one 9-litre really useful box with a concept that I've been talking about on podcasts and various things for a while called I Ain't Been Chopped on Light. Now, essentially, one of the drawbacks of I Ain't Been Chopped on is that it doesn't finish very well in a club night unless you are really, really on the ball with the rules and you know what you're doing. So the idea was to cut it down such that you're playing with a couple of platoons rather than a full company against a couple of platoons or slightly less on a 4x4 table rather than a 4x6 table. Uh, one of the classic things that quite often happens in I've been shopping scenarios is they are very often two-phase affairs in that the defenders wind up with an advanced defence force and they'll fall back onto a, a main position. And the the part of the design of scenarios for I being shot on light is to eliminate that. So essentially it's a small typically, but not always, 
small German defence force holding some strong point against a couple of platoons of, uh, of Americans or British. Um, I've run a few. Uh, we ran the one I've run um, for the Thiel Gamers and also ran a couple of times at the club. Uh, should be in the next Two Fat Lardies supplement. The one we took to the other partisan, not this year, but last year, for those of you who wandered by my very densely packed Italian town, that was a, a another attempt at only being shot on light. Uh, and I've run a couple of other things like it. it it's working as a concept. Um, I may actually see if I can't write up a set of suitable fictitious or non-fictitious scenarios that allow people to dip in and learn the rules in a club night without feeling under time pressure to finish. It doesn't hurt that you can, for example, were one to go out and acquire the old, well, the, not the most recent, but the one that was a few years ago's, open firebox set from Flames of War that comes with essentially about the right number of US paras, about the right number of German defenders and a few vehicles and the like and a completely spurious V2 rocket. There's probably enough in there to make a, a set of teaching scenarios out of that would allow someone to learn. Um, I ain't been chopping and I'm giving some thought as to whether I should write that up. Although it will involve actually getting round to painting the paras, which I've been meaning to do for rather too long. Yeah, I know, I know. So that's I ain't been shot on light. There's a few more things on the blog about it. Feel free to go and dig them out and check them out. Check check those out. Um, but that's pretty much it, I think, for I ain't been shot mum and for news for this episode. So, blog watch. Something a little bit different, but again in keeping with the theme of what is to come. Um, there are probably quite a few of you who noticed that Channel 5 has been doing a great model railway competition. Or even a great model railway challenge, he says, bothering to look it up properly. Now... <laughs> There are people within the Model Railway hobby, hobby who didn't like it because it, they felt it was slightly trivialising the hobby. But um, from talking to and, and listening to various people's comments from people who were actually in the show, it does appear to have generated quite a bit of interest in the, in the hobby that maybe wasn't there before. And frankly, if that's what it takes to fill the hole between Thomas the Tank Engine and serious historical railway modelling, um, and gets people on the road. I'm all for it. That's not the the purpose of blog watch, but if you were watching that, you would have noticed that one of the judges was a lady by the name of Kathy Millett. Now, Kathy Millett is a 
self-confessed um, scenery junkie. She makes scenery. In addition to being a judge on the Great Model Railway Challenge, she is a very, very good scenery builder. Now, I'm, I'm a huge fan of well-built scenery for war games. I feel it's one of the things that, that we don't do as well as model railways. Um, and if you go and... Not so much her blog, but if you go and find her YouTube channel, there is an absolute shed load of stuff on everything from how to make flaking paint look convincing, how to make a concrete roadway look convincing, which um, is something we're dreadful at. I mean, I mean, it just painting it grey does not produce a road. Um, she's got trees, water, you name it. Some of it, some of her, her little end of episode teasers can be a little whimsical and silly, but there's an awful lot of really, really good scenic tips in there. And if you're going to watch someone like Melda Terrain Tutor, which you probably all should be watching anyway, then I would strongly recommend that you add Kathy to your YouTube watching role as another source of scenery inspiration. It doesn't hurt that she's got a great sense of humour and knows her stuff and is a very good and articulate presenter um, better than a lot of YouTube presenters. And I again, go check it out. Um, it's worth it's worth digging through the the archives for if you've got a particular scenery problem. It's very well worth digging through her archives to see how she's done it because she quite often she she does make a point of looking at the real thing and using that to inform how she how she creates creates the likes of say concrete tarmac that kind of thing well worth watching um, strongly recommended <laughs> Here we come to the closing part of the podcast. For those of you who are following me on Twitter, you will probably have noticed that I had a go at this on Saturday, um, and various weird things ensued with Audacity, which, as far as I can tell, seem to have been down to the fact that my machine's been up for far too long and was running out of various critical resources. So hopefully, this time through, things will proceed without a hitch, and you should get a podcast fairly shortly. Alright, if you've been paying attention, you'll probably have noticed that there's a little bit of a recurring theme through a few things in this podcast, which is railways. And while while the operative word for this little monologue is not railways, it does cover a large part of it, or at the very least, the model railway hobby. Now, if you follow my blog, you'll know that I'm also a railway modeller, although um, I get even less done with that hobby than I do with uh, wargaming sometimes. And you'll have seen a few articles comparing various aspects of the two hobbies. Now, now I'm not going to go to those in a massive amount of detail, because uh, you can always go and read the links and, and comment. But I wanted to touch on 
one of the things that I only really mentioned in passing, which is just as relevant to our hobby as it is to model railways. Um, and I've had quite a few interesting discussions and, and thoughts about recently. Now, um, I think it's pretty clear to anyone, if you're a wargamer, that wargaming is an incredibly broad church. Uh, you've got everything from what Rich Clark would affectionately call space pixies, um, which is a little unfair, but um, Warhammer fantasy, things that have no historical basis at all, varying degrees of fun and silly, all the way through to the people who are recreating small or large actions in miniature with every last figure painted down to the very last detail. And there is there is a huge range, and not everybody likes all of it, and that's entirely their prerogative. And to, to nobody's surprise, I suspect, the same is true of the bottle railway hobby. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Channel 5 in the UK has been running a program called the Great Model Railway Challenge, which is essentially, it's your typical pit teams against the clock with a challenge TV show. It's designed as primetime entertainment TV. Um, with the best will in the world, you can't expect them to focus on the more serious aspects of the hobby simply because that will cause an awful lot of people who have no interest to switch off. Whereas adding a bit of lightness and fun, um, well, it seems to have worked. It's been, I think it will be fair to say, interestingly polarising in the hobby. If you um, if you want an, an analogue for TMP or similar serious hobby-focused fora in the railway modelling hobby, then you're probably looking at something like RM Web which has about 34,000 subscribers and is a big model railway forum. She is sponsored by one of the railway mags, or at least certainly they have a large presence on it. It also usually gets mentions from the other the other mags, um, gets lots of the manufacturers' news bulletins, and has a very thriving community, a lot of whom are, to use a slightly pejorative term, would rivet counters um now pff, make of it what you will i i would love to have the time and the money to be a rivet counter i, I would love to be able to put things on the table in a war game sense or on, on the track in a railway sense that are that are perfect in every every aspect but um the problem is probably worse in railway modeling than it is in war games since at least in war games um, most of what you want to put on the table is not terribly big, and the economies of scale and producing it mean that, as I've often said, as regards World War Two, fifteen mil as an example, if it existed and it fought, somebody probably makes it, and you can pretty much reliably guarantee that one of Battlefront um, Plastic Soldier Company forged in battle, Skytrex QRF Command Decision. Me through um, 3D printing other people's designs produces it, and you will get there in the end. It may take a bit of searching. Of course, the problem with railways is 
the scales most people model, you're looking at something that's a foot long, if it's an engine or a coach, probably slightly less if it's, it's, it's a wagon, but even still, it has to run. It's usually a bit larger scale. Um, and when you consider that a model loco of the ready-to-run double O, um, i.e. that's 20 mil scale to you and me, 176 to other people, um, loco from, even if it's one of those, if it's been made by one of the big plastics and metal producing companies in China for one of the big manufacturers, is going to set you back 100 quid. And the, the run costs for that and the economies of scale essentially mean that the big manufacturers are pretty much restricted to stuff that they can sell. By which I mean it's probably got to have at least showed up under British Railways in the UK, which means post-1948 or so. Um, even if it turns out to be something that's pre-war or even pre-the grouping in 1923, um, they'll sell it if it's either... In one of the museums, in which case the National the National Railway Museum market will probably sell quite a few copies, uh, and it also makes it easier to make the model because they've got a preserved one to look at, or it survived from before the war through into British Railways days so they can paint it, provide at least one version painted in British Railways livery that the modellers, the largest percentage of modellers will find it useful. This means if you're into, like me, modelling something pre the Second World War, um, the odds are that 50% or more of the stuff you want to put on your track, nobody makes in ready to run. And unfortunately, the next step from there is, if you're very lucky, somebody has a um, plastic kit of it. Uh, those are quite rare. Or you're moving on to an etched brass and white, white metal kit uh, and at that point, you are looking at something like 100 quid for a coach by the time you've finished it, and twice or three times that for a locomotive, and you've got to build the damn thing yourself, uh, which includes rolling the boiler, um, soldering the brass, etc., etc., etc. In short, um, it's not a cheap hobby if you are of the River County persuasion. Now... <sighs> This does this does result in much the same as I think it does in our hobby. Hobby, you have the broad spectrum from the people who will happily buy ready-to-run locos, stick them on the track, and have fun playing with them, through to the people who want to lovingly recreate whatever in in one seventy-six scale, down to the last rivet and blade of grass, um, and pretty much like our hobby. Um, there's a certain degree of the um, farmers don't talk to the cowhands, and vice versa. And and it's a crying shame. Um, there were a number of debates raised by um, the Great Model Railway Challenge on precisely that subject, because for obvious reasons, and to make good television, that they had to make it slightly light. Some of the challenges, in fact a lot of the challenges, did involve... Uh, shall we say gimmicky and, and slightly fantasy and full elements, fun elements that would have looked slightly out of place on a historically accurate model of a railway layout. And equally, you do get that the, the people who, who are historically detail-obsessed, and, and frankly, I'd count myself on that score. If I had the money and the time, I would love to be that historically detail-obsessed. But the, the classic example recently is Oxford Rails. 
put out a model of a GWR Dean Goods, which is probably the ubiquitous Great Western small freight loco. Uh, was around from the late 1800s on. In There were a large number of them produced, and because of the Great Western Railway's habit of tarting things up and making them better every time in, they came in for their scheduled refit every seven or eight years. If you really want to model a specific Dean Goods as it appeared in your locale at your time, uh, you're going to have to do quite a bit of research because there's any number of minor... It, it makes Sherman variants look trivial. Um, so Oxford Rail, seeing the fact that nobody produced a ready-to-run Dean Goods apart from Airfix, and that was 30 years ago, decided amongst, upon, among themselves that they'd get a nice foot in the uh, railway market by building as their second historical loco in, in their range, a Dean Goods. Unfortunately for them, they didn't have the best of historical research um, to help them out. So the resulting model um, had a couple of things which I think could be kind of described as flat-out wrong, and a few things that were correct for one particular very small subset of Dean Goods, and so on and so forth. In short, it wasn't a perfect model by any means. Now, there are some aspects of producing a model like that where you just have to shrug and accept the fact that when you're modelling at 176 scale to a track standard which is actually um, 7 inches under scale um, for historical reasons that I won't go into right now, that you are going to have to make some compromises. And a couple of the things they did could be seen as compromises for the the vagaries of double O scale, but there's quite a few things they did that there there is, much as it pains me to say it, very little excuse for, in that they could have done better research, they should have done better research. And there are a large, there were a sizable number of people on the various threads about the Dean Goods basically saying, I'm not buying one because it's not accurate. And having seen the lengths to which some people were prepared to go, given one, to make it accurate. Um, yeah, it's clearly was not accurate. But conversely, um, elsewhere you see people who are posting videos saying, look, I've got the Oxford, Oxford Rail Dean Goods. It's really pretty, which in its defence it is, in various of its paint jobs. And it's good enough and it runs on my track. And this is where I start to get a little, um, I won't say miffed, but there's, there's points to be learned here from both our hobby and from railway modelling. You see, so you'll see that video from in YouTube of, let's take for example, Sam Strains, who is a young lad, uh, he's late teens, I think, but don't quote me on that, and I'm sorry if Sam ever gets to hear this and I've, I've mischaracterised him as being an awful lot um, older or younger than he actually is. But Sam Strains popped up a review on his website, now his, his, on his YouTube channel. Now his YouTube channel, I suspect to everybody's horror, if you're a serious railway modeller, his layout still, still runs on his loft carpet. He has a wide range of engines, none of which are of the, necessarily of the same period, the same livery, the same railway company. But sod it. He has fun. And more to the point, he has 34,000 subscribers, which is nearly as many, which is in fact almost exactly as many members as RMWeb has. And he got roundly pilloried on the RM thread, RMWeb thread 
for basically not knowing what he was talking about. And there were people... Um, there were, to be fair, there were people on both sides of the camp. There, there were people who said, um, who cares what he says, uh, he's wrong. There were people who said, um, but look at the number of page views he had. There are people going to watch his, read his reviews. To which other people have said, well, that's disgusting, they shouldn't. And there was, of course, the amusing little, little parallel between RM Webb is the Times um, and Sam's Trains is Fox is um is the Sun or RM Webb is some reputable news outlet and RM uh, Sam's Trains is Fox News and well um so but you 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 get the idea there are there is that divide between the hobby and the the, the purist if you like and there's any number of other YouTube channels on on. On YouTube, huh? there's any number of YouTube channels that that cover model railways of varying degrees of um, varying degrees of sophistication. Um, Everard Junction, who is a modern image modeler who um, is quite purist, but but quite quite cheerfully open about it, uh, has nearly fifty thousand subscribers. Um, Budget Model Railways, which is um, a dad and his son building cheap and cheerful model railways with whatever's at hand and trying to avoid paying as trying to trying to pay basically as little as possible for it. He's got over ten thousand subscribers. And I suspect that most of them are are complete anathema to um to a lot of the folks who are into what they would consider the more serious side of the hobby. There's um another young lady who actually watched the the Great Model Railway Challenge, and saw the Black Adder goes fourth layout. Callum, who was the team leader for that, runs a channel called SDJR7F88, um, and he runs. He's got a lovely layout which I've actually featured in my blog, which is a narrow gauge layout based around the World War One trenches. Uh, he's actually brave enough to poke his head up on RM web from time to time, and and comment on various things, um, for which more power to him. But what I'm getting at here is. This whole debate about what is and isn't the hobby comes also with an issue that both hobbies suffer from, that I've heard described as the greying of the hobby, the fact that those of us who are, if you like, um, the, the, the better known... The, the, oh, that's, that's not the right way of putting it. The, 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 the hobby is getting older. Well, this is, this is inevitable. But I think the concern is the hobby is getting older and there isn't enough youth coming in the bottom end. Now, I would like to think that the likes of Sam Strain, SDJR, 7F88, New Junction, Everard Junction, people like that, are actually giving the light of that. And that there's a certain degree of blinkered vision, possibly in both hobbies, that we need to overcome. Um, I suppose the closest analogy to what we've got in the wargaming hobby at the moment would be base of war now if you're a purist historical war gamer you would probably certainly until recently have thrown up your hands and said why would i bother watching beasts of war because all they do is fantasy and sci-fi skirmish games and the like and then somebody namely mr clark made a very smart move and went over to visit them and took chain of command and chart practice and it's very instructive to see that when you actually reach out as opposed to mocking or otherwise deriding the, quote, popular media just because your stuff isn't featured on it, it's quite amazing what you can do. 
chain of command is consistently getting really high ratings on Beasts of War. Everybody's saying good things about it. People who've clearly never come across the game before are going, holy bleep, where was this before? Why didn't I know about this? And so I guess guess what I'm what I'm coming to about this is the problem we face isn't isn't that nobody is necessarily wanting to join the hobby. I mean, it's a clear demonstrable side effect of the Great Model Railway Challenge that one of my club mates went into Trains for You, who are the Peterborough local model railway shop, where quite a few of us get our scenery, because they do lots of useful scenery, scenic stuff, couldn't move for people. And the staff quite openly said, yeah, we think this is the Great British um, Railway Challenge, the Model Railway Challenge effect. And the same apparently has been true of the last two or three model railway shows since the show. People are turning up in droves. And I think the takeaway we need to get from this is twofold. If you want to engage someone, no matter what you think, how good you think your part of the hobby is compared to their part of the hobby, then you have to engage them, you have to meet them, you can't stand there and deride what they do because it's not what you do. The number of people who have joined our club who started out as War Machine or Warhammer or something similar players of things that um, I personally don't find terribly good fun and over the course of the three, four years they've been with us and now rapidly playing I Ain't Been Shot Mom, English Civil War, Ancients, um, to quote to quote Tom from our club, I can't remember the last time I painted something without bothering to check whether its uniform was the right colour. You need engagement and exposure. The second thing is that the hardest thing by far is to get that person in the door. Once they've decided they want to move soldiers around a table or move trains around on a railway track, that's good enough. It doesn't matter if what they want to do with their hobby is not what you want to do. Expose them to a part of the hobby. Expose them to as wide a range of things as you can. Let them find what they like. And don't expect that they will instantly like what you like straight away. Because they won't. Because, I mean, frankly, um, when I started wargaming, I played World War II games with a set of club rules which weren't terribly realistic. When you could absolutely guarantee that... Most of the tanks on the table would never have seen battle at the same time. Half of them probably never came off the eastern front. Half of them never came off the western front. And so on and so forth. Um, when I was a, a kid, and my, my model railway layout had a mixture of things from heaven knows how many different railway companies, some of which were horribly underscale, um, really low-quality bottles, because frankly that's all you could get in ready to run. And these days I'm looking through for um, London and North Western locomotive kits because the line I want to model, most of the stuff's not available and ready to run. So people change, and you have to accept that people will not come to your hobby necessarily wanting exactly the same things out of the broad church that is your hobby as you do. And if we want to keep these hobbies going, and that's just as true for railway modelling as it is for wargaming, we need to accept that 90% of the battle is getting them in the door and accepting that what they do might not be what we think of is the is the holy grail of the hobby. But once you've got them in the door, the world is your and their oyster. 
and if we can do that then I see no reason why both hobbies shouldn't continue growing and attracting a younger generation and continuing to blossom in a way that we'd all like it to. There you go. This has been The Miller's Tale, Episode 5. Hope you enjoyed it. Now, I'm sorry we didn't quite make November, but a combination of technical troubles, work and other things meant that we didn't get started, as, as, as you heard, until the end of November. And it's now Tuesday the 4th, and I should get this out tonight, or worst case, tomorrow. And the next episode will probably happen around about the weekend before New Year. So, until then, all I can really say is... Roll good dice. The Miller's Tale is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. As a mark of respect for the passing of Harry Leslie Smith, the RAF veteran, and campaigner for refugees and other rights. I'll be running this episode with no closing music. Rest in peace, Harry.